Now, last weekend was a, a pretty important weekend for us as a nation as we reflected back on 9-11. I don't know if you were like me, but I, I, I got kind of wrapped up with all the different shows going on. And I watched a number of them, and a lot of them were really very moving. But there was like a central theme that kept coming through the shows that I watched. Even though it was a tragedy, Islamic terrorists attacked our nation. People that were there, people who were rescued, they were grateful. Did you hear that? Time and time again as I interviewed people, they were grateful for the rescuers. They were grateful for their families. They were grateful for their friends, their life here in America. They were grateful for this as a nation. And it just kind of permeated everything. And I think as a nation, after that, we kind of grew together and we were grateful for what God had done for our country. I mean, we even had Congress gather together on the steps and pray in the name of God. Remember that? It was like a real important time for us. But I think over 10 years, it became kind of a distant memory and and people have become somewhat almost like spoiled little children. They're no longer grateful to God. They kind of expect God to give them their stuff. You know, I was watching a show with my daughter when I was thinking on this message. We, a couple years ago, my daughter turned on the TV and there was this program. And it was a program about very wealthy people who give 16th birthday parties for their kids. And it was called something like Sweet 16 or whatever. I don't know if you've seen it. But there was this one that just absolutely blew my mind. Beautiful little girl turning 16 And they threw this, I mean, amazing party. I mean, I don't know how much that thing cost, but thousands and thousands of dollars. And then they blindfold her, and she's all excited. And and then right in front of her, they pull up this brand new Lexus, right? Brand new, beautiful car, probably $70,000 or whatever. And they take off the blindfold, and she gets really upset. She wanted a Mercedes, (laughs) right? (laughs) And I was just like, what? I mean, she literally threw a fit right there, cried and stamped off and the whole deal. My concern is that in the church, we can become kind of like that little girl that that we get kind of spoiled in our thinking, and how come you don't give that to me, God? And we've kind of lost sight of having that heart of gratitude. We just celebrated communion this time of being grateful to God. But as people in Christ, we should be the most grateful. We should be the ones that recognize what God has done for us. And in the first century, I think Paul was concerned about those in Colossae, which is where we're going to be in today. And I think he's afraid that perhaps these people would become ungrateful. False teachers had come into the church. They were bringing in lies. They were stirring up things. And these people's thinking got kind of stirred up. And so Paul, being a faithful minister of the gospel, his good friend, a disciple, Epaphras, comes to him and says, man, there are these false teachers in the church. And Paul, being the faithful minister begins to pray for them. And he writes them a letter where we're at today. And we'll be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes them a letter. And in in this section that we're in today in Colossians chapter 2, the main idea that kind of holds it all together is gratitude. I think it's the secret weapon that God has given us, particularly against the enemy. The enemy wants to bring in what? Doubt and discouragement. But when we're grateful to God, it battles against that. And this is Paul's heart. So in this message today, Paul's going to show us four reasons why we should be grateful to God. And we're going to learn from Paul's example and the instruction that we see here, four areas where we can be grateful for what God has done for us. 
Let's look at the text, Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Again, that's Colossians chapter 2, 1 through 7. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. And even though I'm absent in the body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Overflowing with gratitude. Now, why should we be grateful to God? I think the first thing we see in this section is we should be grateful to God because God provides us faithful ministers to help us. We should be grateful to God because God has appointed faithful men to see over and care for our souls. Look at verse 1. Paul is saying this. He writes, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those at Laodicea and even for those who haven't even seen my face. Paul ends this section in verse 7 with overflowing gratitude. This is the main idea. This is what we call the big idea of this section. And as we look particularly at this one, we see that God provides for his children. And what is one of the main ways he does that? He gives us faithful men to care for us, to look on us and help us to grow. Now, we're an individualistic culture. We don't like that. But God knows the way we're made. And so in his care and concern for those that he calls the church, he calls people to be faithful. And Paul is one of those. He's a minister who cares for those who God has put under his, his care. And you see here the words great struggle. It's a Greek word and it's agnon. And it means we get the word agonize. And that's the idea here. Paul agonizes. He cares for, so deeply for those that God has put under him that he, he agonizes for them. He, he, he wants to help them. And he's stuck in this Roman prison, but his heart is out there. He's with them in spirit. And he's agonizing for them. In Acts 20, 20, Paul says this. He says, I do not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly from house to house. How does Paul agonize? He agonizes by instructing those that God has put under his care and for praying for those. He says, from house to house, I go in and wherever I go, I begin to instruct, I begin to teach. That's how his struggle comes out to people. And he prays. In this this book, Paul begins it in, in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, we give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. This is Paul's heart. Now, he's an apostle, but he's also a pastor. And these people, God has called him to look over and to care for, even though he's never even seen many of them because he's been stuck in a jail. They were actually led to Christ by Epaphras who came to Paul, but Epaphras was his disciple. And so Paul sees that as an extension of his ministry and his heart is with them. And God has ordained Paul and Epaphras to, to pastor these people. And God places a burden on ministers 
God places a burden on our hearts for the people he puts under our care and and it, and it expresses itself and the way it expresses itself in Paul is through teaching and preaching and, and prayer for them. And in the Bible, it speaks about a minister as a shepherd. As a shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And, and I looked up in the Oxford Dictionary, shepherd, and it's one who cares for his flock. It's a, it's a minister who provides spiritual care and guidance. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. He says, He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some as evangelists, but some as pastor teachers. That's one. This is Paul. He's a pastor teacher. And God is so good to us. Particularly, I think He's good to us in this church. He's given us a faithful pastor, one who's faithful to the call in his life, one who wants us and cares for us and he, he struggles for our souls. Pastor Neil regularly prays for you. His heart is the heart of a pastor who agonizes for those that God has brought into the church. Eugene Peterson said that sometimes I think all I do as a pastor is speak the word of God in a situation where it hasn't been seen before, where people haven't recognized it. And oftentimes that's what a role of a pastor is, is is somebody struggling and we bring the word of God because they didn't think to look at that one spot. And I mean, how many times have each one of us been ministered to by the teaching of Pastor Neil? where he had just that right word at the right moment when we were in a crisis moment in our life and it ministered to us because he was faithful to take the time to study the word of God and to present the word of God and to give it to you in a way that you understand and say, oh, I can use that, I can take that with me and it ministers to me. I got to tell you this, and Pastor Neil probably would never tell you this, but he is a faithful man of prayer. Very many times I've come early in the morning and I'll open the door to to our office and I'll see him in his office and he has the directory open and he has a page out and he's praying by name for the people in this church. And he does that regularly for you. And if you've got a picture in there, he knows your face. (laughs) And he's praying for you. That's that's our pastor. That's That's a picture of what Paul is here. He's a faithful man. He knows the call in his life and we should be grateful that God has put men like that in our lives to minister to us, to help us. Now, I know that many of you have heard about Augustine. He's a well-known theologian back in the 4th century. Which you may not know, but Augustine, before he was a Christian man, the guy was a rough dude. He was into wanting money and women, and that was kind of his deal. He became a, uh, an intellectual. He taught rhetoric, which is basically speech. The problem is he went to Rome because he wanted to find his fame and fortune there and he ran into a man by the name of Ambrose. He was the Bishop of Milan. And although he is a doctor of rhetoric, this man's preaching captured him. There was something about it he couldn't figure out. It stirred his soul and he went week after week and would listen to this man Ambrose preach and he couldn't connect that dot and then one day he, two women that he knew came to Christ. And they gave their lives to the Lord. And they said, we're, we're surrendering it all. And this so convicted him. In his writings, he says he ran outside and he flung himself under a tree. It was a fig tree, I guess. And he cried out to God. And he says, how can I rid myself of this uncleanness? How can I be free of this sin that clings to me? And right then in God's providence, there were kids playing somewhere nearby. And they started, they were playing this game where they said, pick up and read, pick up and read, he heard. And he ran and he grabbed the teachings of Paul and he just kind of opens it up and it falls to Romans 13, 13 and 14. I want to read it for you. 
Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness and not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality and not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Right there, Augustine wrote this. He said, instantly, as I reached the end of this sentence, it was as if, as if a light of peace was poured into my heart and I was converted on the spot. A work of God. A miracle. But do you know where that started? It started from a faithful man, Ambrose, preaching. <laughs> Suddenly stirred his heart, got those juices full, and the Holy Spirit working. We should be grateful, guys. Because God has called many, 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 many thousands to be faithful to the Word of God. And He's been faithful to us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, I most gladly will spend myself and be expended for your souls. That's the heart of a faithful pastor. And some of you might object to this and say, now wait a minute, man, we're talking like the 21st century, right? What do we need a pastor for, man? We got TV and we got iPods and I even got, you know, messages on my phone. And I mean, what do I need a living guy for? Because God has designed us to need someone who cares for us and prays for us as his representative who goes before us in prayer. And he's also designed us to be in a community that he wants us to love one another and we grow together. Because God is faithful. He's appointed men to be faithful in our lives. We should be grateful to God because he's provided faithful ministers for us. The second thing we see is we should be grateful to God because God provides strength and encouragement when we need it. He provides strength and encouragement when we need it. Look at verses 2 and 3. Paul says that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from full assurance of understanding, resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God's desire is to provide you encouragement so you stay strong in Christ. And that word encouragement there is parakaleo. In the Greek, it has a number of meanings, and the two primary ones are encouragement and strength. And I think we have a dual meaning here. You have believers that, that are being attacked, if you will, by false teachers. And so Paul wants them on one side to be encouraged in their faith, but also to be strengthened in their faith. And I think it has both that we're looking at here. And he says here that their hearts, and the word for heart doesn't just mean our feelings, it means our minds. He wants our minds to be strengthened, to be intact. And one verse that, that, I, that I came across was Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In that verse, it's referring to our thinking. You see, the emotions respond to the way we think. If we think biblically and correctly, it will affect the way that we act and the way that we feel. And so Paul's heart here is that these believers would, would be encouraged. And, and how are we encouraged? He says we're knit together in love. Guys, we don't do this thing alone. We are called to do it in a community just like we're here. We love one another. In fact, as Jesus says, this is how you'll know my disciples, that they have love for one another. This is an area of encouragement for us, and we should be grateful for that. I mean, God could have worked the deal out where he just said, okay, I choose you, now do it alone. <laughs> Become a monk. Go somewhere on a hill. No. He made a family, a community. We get to share together in this. 
We are a holistic body of believers. We're changing. We're united. And, and, and literally, God says that the church is like a body. In Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, he says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes growth of the body and the building of itself up in love. Each individual part is you and me. And, you, and the, the neat part about the Christian mind is you get to discover what part are you in this body. And why has God called you here to this body? And how are you serving our Lord here as a way of ministering to others in love? You're knit. It's like a fabric. And through that, we get love. We get, a, we get encouragement. And we stay together. We, we stay strong in our faith. So why does Paul desire their hearts to be knit together in love? He tells us so that they will have encouragement that comes from the full assurance. Full assurance. I think what he's saying here is he's saying so that you absolutely know that you know that you're in Christ. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. And the result is, And a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul wants these believers in Colossians to be sure. He doesn't want them swayed, if you will, by false teaching. He wants them to be so grounded in what they believe. It doesn't matter if somebody brings in the best lie. They know what the truth is. And they're not shaken. And so you've got to ask the question, do you know for sure? That you're in Christ. It's so important for us as believers to have this one. First John says, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. The enemy's tactic is always doubt. What God wants is for you to be sure. If you're in the mode where you're feeling like maybe I need to earn God's favor. I got to keep on that treadmill, man. I got to figure this out. I got to constantly keep trying to please him because I... He may not like me today. You need to understand our Lord. Understand that salvation is His idea. It's God's idea. From beginning to end, it's God's heart. It's who He is. It's the very nature of the Lord that we serve as He wants us in the kingdom. John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17 says, Just as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but they will have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world it might be saved through him. This is God's plan from beginning to end. It's in the very heart of God. And your salvation, believe it or not, was in the mind of God before there was ever a foundation created. God knew you. He's God. He's sovereign. And the fact that you're in the kingdom is a working of His Spirit, of a working in your life. And so if you're in Christ, you can be solid that He began that good work in you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we should always give thanks to God, brethren, Beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for a salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and a faith in the truth. God is active in the work. He's not passive. 
He wants you in the kingdom. And not only is he active in the beginning, he's active at the end. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. It's bookends to us. And we're safe in the middle in Christ. Are you grateful to God for your salvation? Or are you constantly plagued with doubt? The misunderstanding in the Christian church is this. I walked an aisle, I said a prayer, now I abide and glide. Or, let go, let God. Here's a more proper way to think of that. Trust God and get going. Trust God and get going. He's done the work. He's captured your soul. Now, Lord, what can I do to please the Lord who saved me? Lord, how can I know you better? Thank you, Lord. It's not rest on your laurels. It's trust in God and serve him. Now, Christ was a mystery to the Jews. For thousands of years, they're trying to figure this thing out. The prophets preached him, but to us, he's no longer a mystery. Romans 16, 25 and 26 says, Now to him who is able to establish you by the gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was hidden in long ages past, but now it's been revealed, made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all the nations might believe and obey him. Are you grateful for God saving you? We've been shown the mystery. And now we can know for sure that we're in him and we're held, the Bible says, by him. It literally says that we're sealed. It says that when we're saved, that God puts a a sealing on us that we become his. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And 2 Corinthians 1.21 says, And he who established you in Christ and anointed us in God, who also sealed us and he gave us the Holy Spirit as a pledge. God keeps us because we're his. Be grateful for that. Because the first chance we get, we run. But the Lord is grateful and he keeps us. He helps us. I I think of assurance kind of like this. I think of it about my house. See, I have a place that I call my sanctuary, my resting place, a place that I know that I'm loved and it's home. And when I've had a rough day, I can go home, I can walk through the door. My, my wife and I will have eye contact and she knows right away I've had a tough day. And she just comes up to me, hugs me and says, Honey, welcome home. I'm welcome there. Well, that's what assurance is with the Lord. One day we are going to walk into his presence and he's going to say, Rob, welcome home. We are deeply loved. Be assured of that. Because in that, there's a foundation set. We don't do this thing alone. We do it in community. But also we do it with the understanding that God is active in our life. That he has saved us from beginning to end and we're safe in him. Now here's the objection. Well, yeah, yeah, Rob, you know, you can say all this stuff, but I don't feel encouraged. I don't feel strengthened. I don't feel assured. Our place in the family of God is not based on our feelings, but it's based on the truth of Scripture and His promises. God has promised us that if you're in Christ, He will keep you to the day of Christ Jesus. So we rest on His truth, not on our feelings. So we should be grateful that God provides strength and encouragement. 
We should be grateful because God provides for us faithful ministers to help us. And the third thing is we should be grateful because God provides stability. Stability. We should be grateful because Jesus Christ is an immovable rock. He ain't going anywhere. He is that foundation that was laid. Look at verses 4 and 5. I say this that no one will delude you with a persuasive argument. Even though I'm absent in the body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Now, Paul's concern here is there's these false teachers. And this is a mixture of Judaism with mysticism. They've come into the church and they're starting to pull some of these believers in the church to their camp. And so he has a deep concern that they will listen to the delusion that is a lie. But also it says here that he delights in their faith. So you see the one side his concern, but the other side Paul is like, man, I am so encouraged that you guys are stable. I am so encouraged that you're just hanging tough in your faith, even though there's the stuff coming at you. You're not moving because Christ is a rock. I've got to tell you guys, it is exciting to see people come to Christ, but it's even more exciting when they grow. When you see somebody come to Christ, I'm like, woohoo! And then you see them month after month growing in Christ. That is an exciting thing. Yesterday we had a baptism. And I think from our church, I, I didn't count, but I think there were somewhere around 17 people that got baptized. We had five adults. And we had about nine or ten youth, and then there was a couple little guys, around eight, eight to ten, that range. It was, it was so cool, and it, it was just a neat time of celebration. Each person got to express, yes, I believe that Jesus died for me. Yes, I'm trusting in him for heaven. Yes, I, I confess I'm a sinner, but he paid the price for me. It was really neat, and then we got to baptize him. Really cool thing happened, though. There was a lifeguard, a woman lifeguard that was standing kind of in the middle of the pack, and she was watching the whole thing, and... Pastor Neil says, okay, is there anybody else that would like to confess Christ and be baptized? And she walks up. We kind of looked at each other like, wow. And then he says, okay. He says, do you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Yes. Do you confess that you're a sinner, but he saved you by his grace? Yes. Well, with that testimony, let's get you baptized. We baptized her. She went right back to her station afterwards. <laughs> like, cool. <laughs> it was awesome. But Christ is the rock. He's that stability, and it's such a time of celebration to see people grow in Christ. Our stability, guys, your stability, my stability needs to be Him. He's it. He's the one that we trust. Now, Hebrews puts it like this. Hebrews 6.19 says, This hope that we have in Christ is an anchor for the soul, a hope that is sure and steadfast. And this is how Jesus put it. I'd like you to go to this section of Scripture. Luke chapter 6, verses 47 through 49. Luke 6, 47 through 49. Jesus says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house. He dug, he dug deep and he laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred... The torrent burst against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and not acted accordingly is like a man who built his house on ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. Where is your foundation built is the question. Is it built from Christ? Is he that foundation dug deep and you are just settled there? then you're stable. If your foundation is any place else, when the crisis comes, and it's coming, when it comes, you will be swept away. 
You see, Paul's speaking here from a pastor's perspective. He can't go to the rescue. He's stuck in a jail chained to a guard. So what's he going to do? He's going to trust that they're in Christ and that, that they have that stable, that stable foundation. I read an article by, by a gentleman by the name of Timothy Keller. And he was sharing about one of his concerns in the church. And one of his concerns is Christians that come to the church based on pragmatism and morality. And I'm going to explain what that is. But just keep those two in your mind. Pragmatism and morality. Keller talked about this gentleman. His name was Joseph. Joseph had made a profession of faith. And he's one of these really excited believers, right? He, he makes this profession. And he was kind of a well-to-do entrepreneur. He owned an advertising firm in New York. And he goes to his employees and he says, we here in this company are now going to practice Christian morality and we're, gonna, and we're going to change the way we do business. No more lying to clients. No more, no more lying to the public. No more billing of hours never worked. No more blame shifting. No more shirking of duties. And to his surprise, it worked. Yeah, the clients loved it. This guy's actually honest and he started getting more business and things were going well. In fact, things were going so well, he started bringing his employees to church and he'd tell them, you know, Christianity is true because it works. Be careful. About eight months later, met a woman who was married. Wow, she's nice. And decided he really wanted to have a relationship with this woman, an adulterous affair, but it didn't quite work within his Christian framework. So he says this, he abandoned his faith and he said, I know I'm doing something you think is wrong, but I want to be happy and that's that love is more important than your version of morality. Christianity was great for Joe guys, as long as it worked. But as soon as there's something that comes along where it doesn't quite fit what Christ has said in this word, we go, wow, that's pragmatism. Does it work? And morality is more like, well, let's just do all the good things so God will somehow bless me. No, true Christianity, you're in Christ because of what? Because it's true. It's true. It's stable. It's the absolute truth. We bank on it. And when that storm comes and it's coming, we're standing on rock. And he ain't moving. Because we are going to suffer in this life, but take heart. Jesus said, I've overcome the world. We have a true foundation, and it's stable. We can give thanks for that. Are you grateful? We can trust it. Now, here's the objection. I don't feel stable. <laughs> like every other day, I'm like, woo. He's stable. He's stable. You run back to the truth, because he ain't going anywhere. Our Lord is that sure foundation. We should be grateful because God provides stability. We should be grateful because God provides for us help, faithful ministers to help us. And we should be grateful because God provides encouragement. And the last thing we see is we should be grateful because God provides a new identity. He's changed us. We should be grateful for that. Six and seven is actually around you on the walls. And it says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. When you became a believer in Christ, when you recognized your sin, that he was the only one to forgive you, you came to faith 
God gave you a new identity. You're changed. You're different. We're in Him, these verses say. We're totally different. You see, before receiving Christ, you were alienated to God. And you have to get your, your thinking caps on here theologically. All the way back to the beginning, Adam and Eve, they had it made. They had a full relationship with God. They had no sin, but they had total freedom to sin, and they did. And the problem is you and I have inherited their, that sin nature. And so we, we have this sin nature that clings to us like death. And it alienates us to God. And it makes us want the stuff on this world a lot more than we want God. Matter of fact, the Bible says that we don't even want God in our, in our nature, in our normal, natural nature. It says this in Romans 3, that there's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. It's, it's this idea that because we're sinners by nature, unless there's some miracle that happens, we ain't going to ever want God. But God is a saving God. And He desires this relationship with us. And the problem is, when, when the fall happened, the spirit died. And the soul got bent, got broken, and the body's decaying. But when we get new life, we get a new spirit. God gives us a brand new spirit that suddenly is alive to Him, and suddenly we have different passions. And our soul, through the process of growing to the likeness of Christ, is being changed and we're being molded into his image. And one day you may die physically, but you get a new life, eternity. We're regenerated. We get a whole new spirit. We're sanctified more and more like Christ. And we're glorified in the end. God is good to us. In Christ, we get this whole new identity. You should be grateful. You should be grateful. When I think about salvation, I like to liken it to one of my favorite things, coffee. <laughs> if you're like me, get up in the morning, I go downstairs and I, I go to the coffee pot and I take the pot and there's still that old coffee in there, I dump it out, rinse it out, right? Fill the, fill the container with water. Fresh beans are, are a must, so I get fresh coffee, pour it in, then I put in that fresh coffee, that smell of fresh ground beans and... And then I, I do an amazing thing happens. There's this little button and you turn it and a red light goes on. And all of a sudden you hear the noise and all of a sudden the smell of the aroma. And that tasteless clear water suddenly takes on this whole new transformation. It becomes dark and rich with all kind of real helpful medicinal purposes. <laughs> and that first cup, oh, what a dream. Well, that's kind of like what's happens to us guys when we come to Christ is we are transformed and we, we take on the aroma of Christ. We're different. And we're no longer these people that are locked and dead in their sin. We now have new life because God is good to us and we should be thankful for that. And it says that we're rooted in Him. 
guys. That first, we walk in Him. That means that we live in Christ. That our life is surrounded by growing daily in Him. It says that we're rooted. It's like a tree that plants its roots in really good soil with water and we're fed by our relationship with Him when we grow and mature. It says that we're built up and established in Him. It's we're, we're built like a house on a foundation. We're established because that foundation is not moving. And also it says that we're instructed. We're instructed with the Word of God and it helps us to grow and mature. And lastly, we're grateful. We have this overflowing gratitude that God has given us. Now, I, I don't know, but some of you might say something like, well, what's really wrong with my old self? I mean, why can't God just take me the way I am and then just use it? Because God is a God of transformation. He's a God of reconciliation. And our God is so good that He takes something that was dead and broken and He brings it into something that's usable for Him and He plants it deep into His Son. And now He gives us this whole new life in Christ. Paul said this to conclude in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. He says, Realize that in the last days difficult times are going to come. For men are going to be lovers of self. They're going to be lovers of money. They're going to be boastful and arrogant. They're going to be revilers and disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. Do you have a heart of gratitude? I pray that you do. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we give thanks for the word of God. I think sometimes, Lord, we just need wake-up calls. Help us to see that there's so much to be grateful for. Help us to know that you're faithful, Lord, and you never, ever forsake us or leave us. And that in you we have stability, Lord. Thank you so much for that. So, Father, now we just give you our day. We give you this time. We thank you for the grace of those who came forward yesterday to be baptized. We lift them up to you, Father. May you help them on their new road. May you plant them deep in Christ. May they grow. Be with us now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.